0: Hi, and welcome to Process, a brand new podcast where we have honest conversations about what it takes to manage the ups and downs of the creative journey. I'm Marcela Chamorro, your host. This is our very special launch day today. We released three episodes today. This is the third. On this episode, I'm honored to speak with David Kane, a writer whose work on his blog, Raptitude, and his books has deeply influenced my own peace of mind. I'm excited to take the opportunity to dig deeper than I ever have before on how mindfulness affects creativity. Let's get to it. David, it's great to have you on the show. Welcome. Welcome, David, to Process. Thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Tell us a little bit about what you do and how you do it. I'm a big fan of your blog, Raptitude, and I've read um, both books that you've put out recently. But for the listeners who are not, um, who haven't encountered your work in the past, tell them a little bit about your approach to writing and everything else that you do. I know you have various projects going on right now.
1: Well, uh, the blog is called Raptitude, as you mentioned, and it's, I basically write about the human experience, you know, what it's like to have a human mind and human body and time on this earth to to do something with it. So it's a pretty broad topic and... uh, Potentially anything could fit under that umbrella. Um, so I write a, a blog post a week on that topic, or I try to. I haven't been that consistent with it um, this summer. Sometimes I let a week go. And then on the side, I release books, ebooks. Some of them are free and some of them I charge for. And that's kind of the, the backbone of my business, that, that um, arrangement.
0: What is it like for you um, to create and to write? Your process, is it a stressful one? Um, is it usually zen? I know you write about mindfulness, and I'm just so curious about applying that to the creative process.
1: Yeah, it's it's really not zen. It's, it can be stressful sometimes. Uh, I've been doing it for six years, and when I started, I had no writing experience at all. So I had no idea what a person actually does when you sit down at a computer and try and write something worth reading. So over time I've kind of refined the process, but I don't feel like any kind of expert out of it. You know, it's it's still a struggle sometimes to find something, an idea that has legs and, you know, that can carry itself to a completed post that people might actually want to read. So right, like it's constantly changing, but right now my process is Wednesday mornings, which is this morning, I will go to a coffee shop, and I'll just write down ideas. Um, I've always got a whole list of ideas, like most bloggers, things I could potentially write about. Um, but Wednesday mornings I will go, and I'll make sure before I leave to get down 10 ideas that I could write, that I could turn into a post potentially. And usually by the time I'm done that, one of them will have spoken to me as one that I could write about at that moment, you know, for that week's post. And uh, then I'll, in the afternoon, I'll develop it. And Thursday, I'll develop it more and try and get finished Friday morning. And that works maybe 75% of the time. And other times, I, I scramble on the weekends. But that's that's the basic process, process for writing blog posts for me.
0: So you spend a considerable amount of time on each post. Um, is that because... And I'm just assuming, so correct me if I'm wrong, that the majority, if the backbone of your business are your books, then the majority of your paying customers come via the blog?
1: Yes. Yeah. Most of the customers of my books are people from, from I don't know about all of them, but um, are, are regular readers of my blog. So basically the blog is there. I mean, it's there because I like to write about these things and I, I had, I was writing about it long before I turned the blog or had used it as a business, but mainly I'll write about the same kinds of topics. And so I'll get a growing audience of people who are interested in that thing. And then I will offer longer form content on those same topics. Like you mentioned meditation and mindfulness, um, in the form of digital books and those aren't free, but the blog posts are. So most of my writing is in the form of blog posts and I'm always working on some longer form content too, which will sometimes be a free book and sometimes be one for sale.
0: And you mentioned turning the blog into a business. That was six years ago or that was more recently? I think it was more recent, right?
1: It was more recently, yeah. I started the blog six years ago. And, you know, you hear the word monetize a lot when you talk about blogging. So basically you start a blog and you build an audience. And then once you have some attention, you have some regular readers, then you can do this um, thing that they use an ugly word for it called monetize the, monetize the traffic to try and earn an income from it so it's hard to say exactly when I started trying to earn um, money from it because I had a full time job the whole time and I started just bit by bit and then two years ago I figured I was a good, in a good enough position to quit the day job and just do this and so far I have managed to do it so I'm kind of proud of myself but yeah it was it's been less than two years that I've been doing this full time.
0: How do you, or how did you in that moment manage that transition, um, in a, in a personal sense like the, so it sounds like the external development of your business, um, you took great care of and in building that audience and and doing that mindfully, um, and choosing when to make the jump, but how was it internally to make that jump?
1: Uh, it was kind of scary. I mean, i had I had been dreaming about it since I started, so it was always in my mind. It wasn't really a decision about whether I was going to take a stab at it, but whether when when it was going to be. Um, so the transition itself was kind of weird because I actually I wrote an article about this um, for New Escapologist Magazine. Uh, a friend of mine runs this magazine about you know, quitting the day job, basically escaping from um, working for in a corporate environment. And the thing that I discovered that I wrote about in that article was that I I was like 32, I think, at the time and had never really been my own boss. You know, I had never been able to get a lot of work done without someone telling me what to do. So suddenly I quit my job and I'm the only one who decides what's going to get done by the end of the day, what my earnings are going to be, what you know, what my standards are, and it was really, it was strange to discover that I really had no idea how to do that, so in that sense, it was a lot of trial and error, you know, if I start work at eight o'clock, how much do I get done, if I start work later in the day, managing um, a daily schedule was hard, and all of that had to, I had to learn from scratch by just trying something, and then trying something else, so it took months to really feel like I was kind of on a roll. And even now there's a lot of things that I don't feel I'm totally on top of, but maybe that's, it'll always be like that.
0: Right. Like I I wrote a blog post called, there's always something. Yeah. (laughs) There will always be something that is nagging at us or that could be improved. And I'm curious about, especially because I know not only from experience, but from speaking to others who monetize via, you know, eBooks and things like this. Um, how you handle stressful moments like a
1: book launch, because they are
0: <laughs> a good time.
1: Yeah, how, well, again, that's another thing where you don't really know what it's like until you actually do it. So my I always prepare as much as I can, maybe too much, by reading um, accounts of people who have done the same thing already. And there's there's quite a bit of that on the Internet. You know, how to, you could just Google how to manage a book launch and you'll get some good advice from people like Chris Guillebeau or others who have done it very successfully and you'll, you can make a checklist, but nothing can really make it seem routine until it is routine. So it's always kind of daunting and kind of stressful and you just have to sort of do your best and things will always go wrong. Like nothing will ever go perfectly right. I think the, the first book launch I did I I wanted to make a separate page on my blog to direct people to who wanted to pay by PayPal um, because the primary vendor or method I used didn't accept it. But I accidentally made it a post instead of a page. And when you make a post in WordPress, the way I have it set up, it gets automatically sent out to the entire email list. So I had this one page that I just wanted a few people to see, and I sent it out as a post without even realizing it for like 12 hours. And this was right at the beginning of my launch, and it was... It felt like a catastrophe, but it it wasn't that bad. It worked out fine. So, I mean, you can't um, disaster-proof everything, but you can read as much as you can. And then when you do have to do it, um, you're as prepared as you can be.
0: And what about for receiving or, and I guess it's more about, sales that has stressed me out when it comes to book launches or any kind of product launch. Um, so how do you manage? I know that a lot of people say and they launch a product and they just sit there refreshing and refreshing and refreshing to see if anybody buys. How do you manage that process where you might have certain expectations about um, the business and a, and a launch versus reality, which might you know surpass or might not reach your expectation?
1: Well, I've done two launches and they both did better than I expected. And that's probably because I'm like a lifelong habitual pessimist where I just, I expect everything to go terribly and I expect to make zero sales. And so far in the the two times I've done a proper launch, um, I've done better than that. So I don't really know what it's like to not meet my expectations because I set my expectations so low
0: you sound just, like very stoic. I'm not going to lie. You sound like you're doing like stoicism, like negative visualization, setting everything so <laughs> low so no matter what, you're happy. That's amazing. I, I, might, <laughs> I might have to take that on.
1: Well, that, that, that is worth doing. I, I do that with some things, but in this case, it's really just a like persistent fear of everything going wrong. And so when things, things tend not to ever go as badly as I expect them to, so in that sense, my pessimism habit kind of works out in that way but um you could yeah i have also tried this like deliberate negative visualization thing where you 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 notice that you're afraid of something and then you ask yourself what exactly am i afraid of i'm afraid of not making enough sales or afraid of getting not making rent and getting kicked out on the street and you think about what if that really happened could i would i survive and and quite often you will you know time goes on and you can figure things out so and then, of course, when you the idea is that when you go through the real thing, it's never quite as bad as, as the catastrophes in your mind when you're leading up to it.
0: This is there a recurring theme that uh, on my podcast so far, and everyone that I've interviewed has had a variation of the worst case scenario probably won't happen, and it's probably not that bad anyways.
1: Yeah, yeah. its I mean, it depends. Some people, I, I really am sometimes envious of people who are optimistic and will go into every project thinking it will be a home run. And my, my pessimistic tendencies are so strong that I just don't know what that's like. And I know that it, it holds me back sometimes to um, expect things not to go so well because I, I tend to delay on things because I'm afraid of them going wrong. Um, but also at the same time, you know, a little bit of what if the worst did happen, it can be healthy too.
0: It sounds like self-awareness is, plays a big part in, um, and and maybe you're not, (laughs) this is funny, like self-awareness that you're not aware of, but, um, it sounds like it plays a big part in how you manage your business. I'm curious how, what it's like to do what you do and what it is like what it's like to be you in a sense of how much time you get to spend creating or writing. And you already explained how much time you spend on writing a blog post, but you also mentioned like long form writing versus administrative tasks or other tasks that may not be so fun, but come along with being out on your own.
1: Yeah. It's hard to know because I don't, I don't track um, exactly how many hours I spend on any given thing. Often I will, work on the creative stuff until some administrative things come up that I can't ignore and then I will just say today I'm going to get as many of these things done as I can and often I find everything takes longer than I think but I kind of, I I keep a list of everything I have to do and try and keep it up to date try and check off the administrative things that aren't as fun Um, but obviously I prefer doing the creative stuff so I find I avoid the administrative stuff but sometimes when I can't find the Um, When I find myself really ignoring the admin stuff because it's boring, I think of how how much stress would be relieved the instant I cross up one of those things, you know, a phone call or something I have to sort out or having to hire a contractor. um, And that gets me to actually doing them. So it's kind of a a fight with myself sometimes because I do prefer the creative side. But um, there's quite a relief in getting something done that you dread.
0: When you spend so much time, let's call it like, like a batch of time on creative stuff. So in this case would be writing specifically, right? How do you manage those moments where you're just staring, maybe not a blank page, but you're staring at the cursors like blinking. And you're like, can I, I, I don't know if I can keep doing this for another hour. I mean, it sounds like you really enjoy it because I can't write for like a two, almost two days in a row. Um, I need like to, I come in and out of, uh, the project, or the blog post, or whatever it is that I'm working on, but that's just my style. Uh, I wonder, how do you handle it when it's so many hours of straight writing? Do you not even notice because you you enjoy it so much, or are there moments where you just kind of want to take a little break?
1: Yeah, um, well, I find when I'm writing, there's kind of two modes that I'm, and I'm either in one or the other. And one of them is that staring at the page and nothing is coming to mind and you're pulling your hair out and you feel terrible. And then the other mode is when you do find an idea that really is um, moving you and you want to write about it. And in that case, once I have an idea that is, I'm really running with, um, I want to keep writing and I, I can write for three or four or five or six hours and it just flows and it, it's, there's nothing hard about it. But often the part, the other mode is the part where you have to find the idea and that I find really difficult. And sometimes I I just get up and I, I know I have to do something else because once you start getting angry enough at your inability to come up with an idea that you can't come up with one, you kind of have to switch gears and and maybe do something, uh, answer emails for a bit or I'll go for a walk and see uh, what kind of mode I'm in later when I try it again. So yeah it's it's easy to do it when you're on a roll and sometimes you're just not and you have to switch it up does
0: that apply as well to your meditation practice i read a little bit um on your blog about how you've had multiple attempts at this monster that is called meditation <laughs> um how's that going and how have you managed that i I admit this is a purely selfish question. I really need to meditate. <laughs> and your recent book, uh, Making Things Clear, has helped me a lot with that practice. So I'm just curious about how you have managed that and for, more for uh, listeners who haven't read the book. Because I know you talk a little bit about it in the book and it's really really interesting take. So tell me a little bit about that first attempt and how it was different from your meditation practice
1: yeah. now. Yeah, I had to, I, my first. As you know, I do experiments on my blog um, where I'll try something out for a month or two weeks or whatever, and see how it goes. And my very first experiment was to sit and meditate every day for I think it was fifteen minutes. Um, and no was, big deal, fifteen minutes. Yeah, it seemed like <laughs> no big deal, but it was it was really difficult. And like I would I would be sitting, and then I would just find myself really angry that at some noise or a bird or something, and I. I just hadn't learned many skills on how to deal with that kind of thing. And then I I went on a meditation retreat where I was sitting like all day for a week, every day for a week. And I really learned ways to deal with that, but it's still hard. Like it's, there are still days when I just don't do it and then you feel bad about that. And so I, by no means have I mastered that at all. Um, I was talking to the teacher at the group that I go to, and he said that he's been meditating for like 25 or 30 years and even now he will just lapse and he'll he'll go weeks with it and once he even went two years he just fell off the wagon and stopped doing it and you know you always come back at some point like you know that the you keep here i'm sure if you read uh, making things clear you would have seen that instruction again and again just return your attention to the breath and that's meant you know if you get distracted while you're meditating you return your attention to the breath but Um, you can also return it to the breath two weeks later, if you've fallen off the wagon or two years later or whoever it is. So I've accepted now that you will lapse sometimes. And I've had a lapse recently during this summer. I started taking class in school and had to move my schedule around and, and, uh, didn't meditate as much as I wanted. So I've accepted now that that happens and all you ever have to do is just sit when you know you should sit.
0: What do you wish you would have known when you started out?
1: Uh, All kinds of things. Um, I guess one thing that comes to mind is realizing how much time you can spend feeling busy, like feeling as if you're getting something done because you're working, yet you're not really getting the important things done. Um, I know that in the the blogging community, people talk a lot about the the 80-20 rule, so much that it's kind of a cliche like for, for those that don't know the 80 20 rule is the idea that 80 percent of your results come from 20 percent of your efforts and what you have to do is recognize which of your f which of your what parts of your work are the most productive parts and do more of that and less of the other stuff that doesn't get much done and so i wish i had known at the start how easy it is to waste a ton of time doing stuff that doesn't really move you forward but just kind of keeps you busy um That's one thing. And just having a more business-like mind because um, if you want to do something for a living, you have to earn enough to make it sustainable. And I was, I think, too focused on just getting the creative stuff done. And I was really hesitant about the business stuff. But doing the business stuff is what allows you to do more creative stuff. That's the whole point, to to be able to write for a living or create for a living. Interesting of focus more on that from the start.
0: That I think that's that's a, a very interesting insight because I, for one, uh, share that with you. The business side of things, even though I, in the I've proven to myself that I'm good at it. Um, it's not the part that I enjoy, but in reality, it's critical because without that, it's the linchpin. Without that, you can't create, or it's not at least not sustainable. Um, so I, I definitely share that with you.
1: Yeah, it's like a lot of, I think a lot of independent entrepreneurs have, I know I know. I do uh, I, uh, an ambivalence about earning money because you have to make choices that will earn you money. And sometimes it's not what you would choose if you didn't have to, but earning enough to to live on it is what allows you to spend more time creating. And it's, So it's like you have to kind of focus on the business side to free up your time to focus on the creative side, which is probably what most of us want to do anyway.
0: Is that because the creative side fulfills you personally or because you feel like you're serving the people who consume your words?
1: (laughs) Um, Honestly, it's because it fulfills me like, you know, if it does fulfill me to serve people like to help. Um, people understand things that I think are important to understand Um, but I mean ultimately everything I do is about creating a life that I can that I want to live you know that I really enjoy and that I think and and part of that is making a contribution that you feel you should make like a lot of I know in some of my jobs in the past I didn't feel like the work that I was doing was really that important to the world and you know just didn't really reflect my values and so um, taking the entrepreneurial route and creating for a living. Um, it does do that. You know, it does. I feel like it, it comes closer anyway to, to serving my values. Cause it's really hard. If what you do for a living has nothing to do with what you care about, you know, when you're just earning to, to pay the rent and then you do the stuff that you really do care about uh, in the evenings and on the weekends. So it's, it's kind of both like serving people and, doing what I think I want to do with my life are kind of the same thing in this context anyway.
0: And they feed each other. Yeah, that's, I think that's a, a happy coincidence <laughs> um, or just very strategic design. Either way, great. <laughs> um, I have one last question for you. They, it's a double question because they might be the same answer. It might not. Um, it's what is worrying you right now And what are you excited about right now?
1: Um, Yeah, it's probably the same thing. Yes, I love when it is. I'm always worried about upcoming products, like upcoming launches. And I'm also always excited about them because they kind of move you forward, both creatively and in a business sense. Um, So I'm always thinking, like, as I told you, I catastrophize sometimes. So I always, when I had come up with an idea, I flip flop between thinking this will be really great and this will be totally terrible and and people will hate it and, you know, never want to read my blog again. So uh, yeah, kind of the same thing. I think it's always the next launch, the next big move, you know.
0: And is that, do you regularly try to apply what you write about? I mean, you mentioned that you're not an expert. I'm definitely not an expert, very, very, very far from it. Um, and it's sometimes, for me at least, it's it's kind of like a slap in the face when I read an old blog post, and I'm like, I'm not even doing what I wrote about. <laughs> um, does that happen to you often, or do you feel like when you write about something, you've reached some level of comfort or mastery
1: of it? No, I don't feel like I've reached mastery of anything, really. I, that happens very often to me because I'm quite often when I write about something, my motivation for writing it is to. Get more clear on it with myself you know like I'm saying I'm thinking about optimism and pessimism and I'll come up I'll think what should I be doing about that what would be helpful and then I will try something out and it will start to work and then I'll want to write about it and so I'll share a blog post about something that I think is genuinely helpful but also that I know master at and quite often I, I do something like some technique or or some habit for a couple of weeks or a couple of months and then I habit takes over and you forget uh, and then I realized, you know, I don't do that anymore. I, what, the advice I need is the advice I gave other people a year ago. I, I just forgot about it. So It's just yeah. a lot to remember. I'm like, yeah.
0: self-improvement, all right, list of 101 things to do today.
1: <laughs> um, yeah. It's, it's definitely a lot. That's one part about self-improvement is that it has endless, yeah, endless aspects. And so, especially with the blog, when you're writing, you're trying to come up with new content that really is meaningful and helpful to people week after week and after years you might have written a hundred articles or hundreds of articles and so that's a lot to remember you know that's a lot to be constantly applying to your life at every moment so it's inevitable to forget a lot of it uh, even when you need to be remembering it
0: one of my favorite books is uh, by a woman named jane mcgonigal and it's called reality is broken Um, have you had a chance to check it out No, I haven't. So in this book, she describes, she talks about game theory and how games could change our realities and game thinking. But one of my favorite aspects of the book is when she talks about a school in New York City that replaces homework with kind of like an online game where students will come home and they will have like an online avatar um, where they have to teach that avatar what they learned that day. And that's their homework. So by teaching, they retain the information much more efficiently. And I feel like that's, at least that's what I'm doing with this podcast. I'm like, I'm going to apply everything I'm learning because I'm going to be talking about it. So it'll, I don't know, somehow stay in my brain for longer. And I feel like that maybe is what you kind of are, are talking about, what you do with your blog posts.
1: Yeah, like you, you. there's kind of two levels on which you learn things. You learn something, you learn a concept like you learn about, oh, this this affects this, and therefore you should do that. And that's entirely different from actually putting it to use in your life and, and getting used to what it feels like to be doing that because there's all kinds of, like, it's, it's so much about habits and muscle memory and how comfortable it feels to do things a certain way. So um, getting actually getting engaged with it is where it you learn something to the point where it sticks, you know, where you actually do it in life and not just think that you should be doing it.
0: Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast today, David. I really appreciate your time and your insights. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with David Kane, a writer whose work has influenced not only my own creativity, but my entire being. I'm honored to have David on the show. So thanks, David, for your time and your insights. I'll be posting more on where you can find David online in the show notes. So visit marcelachamorrocom slash process for more information. Thanks so much for listening today, our launch day. I hope you'll subscribe and leave us a bright, shiny review on iTunes if you enjoyed the past three episodes. Remember that today was a special schedule for our launch. I'll be back with a new episode every Friday from now on, including this Friday. So tune in in a few days for the next episode of Process for more on managing the ups and downs of creating and making. I'm Marcela, your host, and this was Process.